All right. Good morning, guys. I'm Colin, your host of Cauldron, and this is a special little episode where we have Matt from the Armorer's Bench. He's going to give us a rundown of the M16 and the other small arms of Vietnam. Um, basically, we're going to turn it over to him, and, and I'll ask a couple of questions, but mostly he's the expert on this, so we're going to let him do most of the talking. This is all based, or it stems from we are currently covering the Battle of Aya Drang. It is 1965, November 14th to November 17th. And that episode should be up later this week. So uh, if you get the chance, give it a rating and review on iTunes. All right, Matt, give us the lowdown on the Armorer's Bench. Let us know a little bit about yourself. What do you do? How did you get into this? And, um, you know, let just kind of give us a, a, a bird's eye view of what you're all about. Cool. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on. Um, basically, uh, I'm a small arms researcher and historian, and one of my main projects at the moment is the Armourer's Bench, which is a multimedia project where we write articles and do in-depth video on various small arms and, and other weapons that we come across. Um, we've been doing it for about three years now uh, with my uh, friend and colleague, uh, Vic Tuff and some other collaborators and basically we visit collections and we take a look at various small arms and then from my academic background what i try and do is i try and make the articles as detailed and as rigorous as i can with the available source material so i do some archival digging secondary source material basically try and be as in-depth and give an overview of sort of the development of these weapons and then how they function basically in service and you know some of the <clears throat> some of the quirks and interesting features of, the, of them and um yeah basically we, we we've looked at everything from 18th century breech loaders like the ferguson rifle straight through to things like the hkg 11 which is uh one of the uh, advanced combat rifle um weapons that was developed to possibly replace the m16 which is one of the things we're going to be talking about today and where could we find um, these articles, the multimedia stuff? Are you on social media? Is the Armour's Bench kind of all over the place? Yeah, we're, we're basically, we have all of our bases covered, or at least try to. <laughs> we're on um, Instagram, Facebook. Um, we have a website, which is thearmoursbench.com. That's Armour with a U, because Vic and I are predominantly British. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we, we spell it the English way. Um and uh, I have my other website, which is historicalfirearms.info, which is the site I set up originally uh, back in 2013. So I try, and, I try and keep that regularly updated with just various little bits that I'm working on. Um, but yeah, I'm on Twitter as well as uh, Historic Firearm. As, um, so if, if you're on various social media platforms, you can, you can pretty much find us somewhere. And we're on YouTube, of course. Yes, I would. That's the key. Um, we'll put links in there on the uh, show notes, and um, and we'll also uh, post on Instagram as well. Um, so let's dive right in. The M sixteen comes about as a replacement for the was it M14. the M M fourteen and seven point six to M fourteen, and that had a lot of uh, design issues, right? The wooden stock swelling, um, kind of a uh, unreliable weapon. The, the main problem with the M14 is it's it's a select fire weapon, 
chambered in a fairly stout caliber. So 7.62 by 51 was developed as an intermediate round after World War II um, to replace the 30-odd-6, which is what the, the M1 Garand was chambered in. Um, but the problem was the 7.62 round, especially in the in the uh, the M14, didn't uh, wasn't optimized for for fully automatic fire. So if you fire a, an M16 on full auto, basically what happens is the muzzle will climb, and the recoil impulse is such that unless you're very well trained and you know physically stout and able to cope with the, the recoil, then you basically lose sight of what you're shooting at because the the weapon shakes you so much it's sort of like the the periphery of your vision so you can't you can't maintain uh, sight picture basically so in the uh, late fifties the U.S. Army began looking at a concept which is called um, small caliber high velocity which is the basic idea behind that is um, is it's a smaller round that has a flatter trajectory. Um, that is uh, less recoiling so that it's not as it's not as powerful around but you can fire it more controllably so that's how the m16 sort of came about um the 7.62 round is a great round and it has it, it has much better penetration over the 5.56 round which is uh what the m16 uses um so obviously uh us troops and marines went to vietnam with the m14 um, and as you mentioned, the issues with stock swelling, etc. Um, but it, fundamentally, it was a reliable rifle, and it was it's a robust system that was derived from the M1 Garand, um, which had served perfectly fine, you know, for like 20, 25 years at that point. Um, uh, so basically, to give a bit of an idea of where the M16 came from, um, it evolved from Armalite's AR10 which is a 7.62 by 51 caliber chambered rifle, which was developed by Eugene Stoner. And uh, that was that was tested by the US Army, but there was no interest in moving away from the M14 at that point, because obviously the M14 was at that point a proven design and was, was being manufactured by all the various US uh, military uh, arsenals and, and production plants, etc. So... The, the uh, AI, uh, excuse me, the AR-10 sort of uh, wasn't taken up by the US, but it was adopted by a couple of smaller nations around the world. Um, but there was this growing interest in small caliber, high velocity rounds. And Armalite were approached and asked whether they could possibly rechamber the, the AR-10 into, a, into a, uh, one of these smaller rounds. And... This development began in about um, 1957-58, and it was initially uh, driven by uh, interest from the Army, but the first adopter of the M16 was actually the US Air Force. So um, they're responsible in 1959 60 for designating the AR-15 as the the M16 and, and gain it into service. So Curtis LeMay was one of the, the big pushes behind that. And at that point, um, a little later on, the US Army sort of like picks up interest in the idea again. And it's spearheaded by Carnarc, which is the Continental, uh, I believe it's Continental uh, Army Command. 
and they were interested in the high uh, the, the high velocity small caliber round again and began pushing so it's sort of like it's interesting that the nuance of how it became adopted sort of ebbs and flows with, with the interest of various important characters within the US military um, hierarchy. So there's initial interest and that sort of dips. The US Air Force become interested and actually adopt the rifle. And then the US Army once again basically becomes interested, especially once they become embroiled in Vietnam where you know lighter weapons would be ideal for, for the terrain they're fighting in. And, and obviously for... Um, their allies as well, you know, smaller statue, South Vietnamese are, you know, they're not coping well with M1 Garands and they definitely aren't going to cope well with the M14 either. So, you know, they're, they're looking for a lighter weapon that is, you know, something that's handier, more portable in the field. So the M16 is, uh, yeah, I think that is interesting. You've got these um, fads or trends that kind of flow throughout the the services as well as anything else you know just yeah. like uh, blue jeans and the beatles you've got the m16 being um popular in different times and different branches when the m16 hits the ground in vietnam is it uh gangbusters from day one is it the you know the ultimate weapon from the start or are there uh, i mean i think we all know that there were some significant growing pains yeah um, what were those and, and how did they go about coping with them at the time? So the M16 reaches uh, Vietnam first in the hands of uh, US Special Forces and advisors. So there's some great photographs of, of fairly early uh, Colt M16s uh, over there. Um, I suppose uh, before I go into Vietnam, I'll, I'll just explain that the AR-15 um was originally an arm-like design, which was a company which was part of the Fairchild Corporation, which was an aircraft uh, developer. Mm. And basically what Armalite specialized in was um, bringing aircraft in- aircraft industry uh, technology to the firearms production um, side of things. So uh, lightweight uh, alloys, aluminium, um, uh, fiberglass stocks, plastics, that sort of thing. So it was space-age stuff, basically. Um, and Eugene Stoner was was the, the, the guy that drove the AR-10 forward. And when the army asked for uh, a, a small caliber rifle, basically he farmed this idea out to some of his engineers. And he, he, he asked James Sullivan and Bob Fremont to, to basically scale down the AR-10 into the AR-15. Um, and in 1960, Armalite sold the design to Colt, which is the, you know, the iconic American mm-hmm. firearms manufacturer. So... Colt took a punt and purchased the patents and design um, IP for the rifle. But at that point, it wasn't fully developed, which is where we come back to Vietnam. So Colt have purchased this rifle. Um, in principle, excellent. It's smaller caliber. It has an inline stock, which means the stock sort of runs straight back in a line yep. into the shoulder. So what that what that means is, whereas with an M14 you have a, a more traditional drop stock, where it sort of like angles down and then up again to put your cheek on the on the on the butt stock, um, those kind of stocks sort of pivot on the wrist of the stock. So when the when firing the muzzle rises and you sort of pivot in the centre, so the butt will go down, the muzzle will go up when you're firing. But with an inline uh, design, what happens is the recoil instead of 
um, pivoting, it goes straight back into the shoulder. So there's much less of that pivot. So you, you can fire it more controllably in sustained fire, in, in bursts, in, in full auto. So getting back to um, the M16 arriving in Vietnam, as I said, it originally uh, arrives in country with uh, special forces and you know advisors to the, the South Vietnamese. And then uh, from about 1965 onwards, it, it's sort of, they begin to issue it to air mobile troops, uh, in, um, specialist infantry, um, airborne units, that kind of thing. So we're looking at Heliborne, Lake Moors, Moors 7th Cav, and um, 173rd Airborne Brigade, I believe it is. Those are the kind of guys that are going to be receiving them. Um, and obviously its first major battle, and indeed the, the I think the US's first major fixed um, pitched battle is a drang. Um, but at that point, issues with the rifle hadn't really been um, identified. So the interesting thing about the rifle is there's they take this design which sort of began to emerge in '58, and by six, seven years later, it's it's been fielded in a combat zone. So. Any small arm or any any kind of weapon system really, or is gonna is gonna require um, nothing hits the ground running, really. So, to put it one way, so things are gonna evolve. Um, various aspects of the rifle are improved. So we see changes to the receiver design. We see changes to add a what's called a forward assist, which uh, is designed to 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 ram the, the bolt home if the bolt doesn't close properly. That's one of the things the US Army insists on. Uh, there's various changes to uh, sort of the barrel profile and rifling. And there's ammunition uh, issues that which have been worked through. So there's the the M16 uses a different sort of uh, propellant uh, powder, which is something we'll come to later on, because that's one of the issues that is uh, identified as being a problem which is causing reliability issues in Vietnam. So since 1965, uh, troops are in the field using the rifle and they're not really finding any major issues. So I I, um, I, I, I skimmed through Hal Moore's book, you know, looking to see, I grabbed it off the shelf, looking to see if I could find any, any points in the book where he really condemns the rifle for not being um, reliable. And, there are no major um, jump uh, standout points in there where he basically says that it, the rifle was you know, breaking down in action. There are a couple of interesting points which I'll get into in a moment, which I found in the book. Um, but at the end, at the end of the battle, he, he basically tells reporters that the the victory um, is is um, he basically tells reporters that the the M16 and the U.S. infantrymen are responsible for the victory. Yeah. So at that point, um, Moore's, Moore's troops are essentially armed with um, three infantry weapons. So they have the M16, the M79 grenade launcher, the 40 millimeter low velocity grenade launcher. And so that I'm gonna. That's the 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 iconic thunking. Yeah. You know. The blue 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny. Like a break open. Yeah. Stubby shotgun looking thing. And you, you have a giant shell that you pop in and, and that basically arcs an explosive charge. And anybody that, you know, from the 90s or was growing up in the 90s probably remembers uh, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Yeah, yeah. Arnold is using that against the police at the end. And it does, it has this crazy, and, and one of the things that I, as I was researching this particular battle, uh, over and over, the veterans talk about the noises that particular weapons and machines or, or uh, weapon systems or vehicles make the Huey, the, the way that the helicopter sounds and the thunking or the, the, the blooper here. Um, it's, it's uh, the M one Garand has such a unique, uh, or Garand has such a unique sound. Do you find that all, you know, as you're researching or, or studying things that, uh, certain weapons just become synonymous with, uh, certain like the the profile or the noise or anything like that is that across the board across time yeah i think so i mean you you instantly um well i instantly associate things with various conflicts so obviously the m16 is synonymous with vietnam um and one of the, you know the sound of of the the plastic handguard the tapping when you tap a when you tap an M sixteen A one's plastic handguard, you, I well I suppose it depends on how familiar you are with the rifles, but on the weapons, but you you instantly know that you're holding an M sixteen A one when you when you pick one up because it has that classic uh, triform forward handguard, hand and it's slightly um, tinny, which lends to that that great myth of troops thinking the rifles were made by Mattel and you know they, they were toy rifles that kind of thing because it is so lightweight and you know one of the characteristics like you mentioned is of the M16 is that it is a much lighter weight weapon than anything that had gone before purely because it was made with these new engineering methods and, and materials and it was a it was a, a revolutionary design and that's why it's still with us today because it lends itself to being adapted it's a it's naturally become a modular rifle which gives it the longevity that we know it has but yeah there are there are definitely characteristics of weapons that you especially when i'm handling them and looking at them you you, you notice immediately well i'm sorry i didn't mean to get you off trail there we've got the m16 <laughs> and the uh the blooper and then what was the third um oh yeah the uh the m60 um general purpose uh, light machine gun so it's, it's sort of a mix between general purpose and a light and a light machine gun so it can be mounted on a bipod it can be mounted on a tripod for sustained fire and that's chambered in the 7.62 by 51 the larger caliber round that the m14 fires as well and is this the saw um it's the precast to the saw so the saw is um, a 5.56 chambered weapon so it's a bit lighter it's a bit smaller that comes in in the, I believe, late seventies, early eighties. Gotcha. Uh, but the the the, the M sixty uh, entered service in I think I think it was fifty eight, and you know, it's one of those other U.S. iconic weapons of, of Vietnam. It's you know the pig. It's you see Marines and soldiers like humping it through the jungle, and it's such a sizable um, machine gun, but. It was well liked because it, you know those seven point six two rounds can penetrate jungle foliage a lot better than a, a five point five six round can. Um, so that was that was one of the advantages of the M sixty, and 
and they definitely proved their worth at, at I drank, you know. They were they were grouping up like two or three of them into into little sections and holding entire bits of the line against um NBA um frontal attack. So they definitely proved their worth. Mm. Um so I guess getting back to the M sixteen at at um I drank, there's a number of interesting sort of like quotes from um We Were Soldiers Once and Young that I wanted to mention. So there's one instance where there's there's a guy, uh, basically he's uh, lost his weapon and he's, he's sort of searching around for an M16. And he goes to a number of different rifles. And each time, I think he goes to about three. And each time the, guy, the guys nearby say, it's down, that rifle doesn't work. So we have to wonder why weren't those rifles working? Was it um, normal combat issues or was it, problems with the rifle that we know about that emerge later on. Um, and one of the issues that Moore describes personally is that one of the retaining pins that held the upper and lower receiver um, together um, slipped out. So the rifle basically fell in two. So he's, let me just find the quote for you. I wanna, it's a really great quote. Um, now, I, I, I'm assuming you read the book at some point. Uh, yeah. It's interesting that you have a guy like Plumley, Sergeant Major Plumley, who doesn't trust the M16. Yeah, he famously uh, wants to wants to stick with his uh, 1911, doesn't he? His 45 1911. Which I can't blame him. Well, it's it's what he knew and what he trusted, I guess. Yeah. So he, you know, it's basically uh, a reliable weapon that is tested, and if if you're used to uh, the the M1 Garand and the, uh, the the M14. I suppose if you're a long-time soldier and you pick up a the super lightweight, yeah, seven-pound M16, you think this is not something I want to be going into combat with. It's, you know, I suppose there's it's a personal preference thing, which is an interesting topic of discussion all of its own. And Obviously, the average infantryman didn't have the option of, you know, saying no. I'm not going to use. I'm not going to use the rifle. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just trying to find this quote. But basically, to to um, to, to uh, summarize what what he basically describes is the rifle sort of like uh, falls in two, and he has to go find another one. So what I think is interesting is elsewhere in the book, it describes. Um, soldiers firing off numerous magazines one after another so they're they're in heavy contact and they're they're basically in contact from within an hour of landing aren't they yeah oh um, yeah. very quickly yeah so obviously at that point standard procedure was when landing in a, in a possibly hot lz they they basically dismounted firing and they laid down um, a pattern of fire around the, the landing zone just to, just to keep heads down if there was anyone around. So they're basically firing their weapons from the very minute they land on the ground. So first boots on the ground, they're firing. So if you think about the, the, the progress of the battle, by the evening they've been firing, they've been in action all day and they haven't had a chance to clean these weapons. So when you think about it, the vast majority of the weapons were functioning perfectly fine at Idrang anyway. Um, there's 
obviously always going to be issues with weapons that are fouling from sustained firing um, parts breakages. It's just it's an inevitability. Mm-hmm. Any any combat weapon, any rifle, any pistol is going to break down at some point under extreme circumstances where you're running through multiple magazines within a short period of time. Um, there's a good quote that I want, I just had and then lost. Where was that? Uh, Sergeant Ernie Savage was pinned down all day. And he, yeah. he says in the book, I didn't run out of ammo. I had 30 magazines in my pack and no problems with the M16. An hour before dark, three men walked up to the perimeter. I killed three of them within 15 feet away. They all had AKs. So there he is running with 30 magazines in his pack, which is beyond any standard combat load that any normal US infantryman would have would have carried. So by about twice, I think. So he's carrying way more than he than you know he normally would. And he's 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 going through rounds all basically he's he's running through these mags all day and having no issues with the rifle. So we have this interesting we can't obviously take uh, the quotes from the book as being uh, the broad overview of the battle. So we don't know how everyone's M16 sort of functioned. And we know that some of them did fail because um, that's mentioned in the book as well. Mm-hmm. But it seems that a lot of the problems were through uh, sustained use. So a lot of heavy um, firefights and, you know, uh, running through ammunition in short periods. So, any anytime you have that high rate of fire, issues can can arise. So one of the tests that militaries do when adopting a new weapon is they run it through um, a reliability testing. And um, one of the tests there is um, sustained fire. So they'll they'll fire um, continuously uh, for as long as the weapon can basically stand up to it. So those kind of reliability tests are extremely harsh because you're basically you're not giving the weapon a chance to you know cool down and breathe basically which is what what they basically encountered during during the battle so the, the you know the points the firefight was so was so um, hot that you know they were basically firing constantly well it's interesting so ernie uh, or sergeant savage there he is surrounded um under almost constant attack yeah and the fact that he had no issues with uh the m16 really does speak to its you know reliability its ability to um function the way it's meant to be but i think overall what or at least my reading of it and i don't i don't claim to know near as much as you do about this but it seems like with the m16 the problem wasn't so much uh the weapon as much as it was you don't know what you don't know. So they didn't know what the issues were going to be until they became issues. And that's something that you can't really plan for. You can't really, um, or you, you know, you can't game plan for that. Well, is yeah, that, exactly. Is that a accurate reading or. I, I would definitely say it is. I mean, uh, there's, there's an interesting quote from, uh, Paul Benke, which was, who was, um, Colt's president in, in the mid sixties. And he says, what we bought from Armalite was not a saleable rifle, but a design, a concept, and an opportunity. 
In fact, at the time of our rights acquisition, the AR-15 had a record of re rejection from the army. If the, AR if the AR-15 had a, a stage of development attracted any weapons purchaser, at the time we could not have brought, we could not have bought the proprietary rights at the price, nor in our opinion for 20 times that price. So what he's saying there is Colt bought the design on a limb. So they, they took a chance with the design, knowing that it wasn't fully ready for fielding and that the US Army were interested, but not um, not going to go all in on this weapon because it had issues. And it had issues even when it was deployed into Vietnam. So basically, the weapon was developed within six years. And it was fielded within those six years. So you're taking a, a, a highly complex sort of mechanical piece of machinery and then putting it into the worst possible conditions that you put something that's made out of metal into. So you, you're operating in, in uh, extremely humid conditions, muddy, difficult terrain, and wet. It rains a lot. So obviously... Water is an issue for uh, weapons in the ill rust components. Now the M16 externally looks like it's made out of mostly plastic anyway, so it has the you know plastic handguard, um, buttstock, pistol grip, um, and they're waterproof, so you don't need to worry about those. But when troops are issued the rifle, and a lot of them in 65, 66 are receiving them in country when they arrive, so they've had no experience with the rifle in the US. They haven't been trained with the rifle. So they're issued with this new rifle and they're told um, it's new, it's lightweight, it's shivered um, in this new round. But they aren't actually told in some cases, in certain units, they aren't basically taught how to clean or care for the weapon. So they're basically cleaning and care for, caring for the weapon as though they would an M14, what they've been previously trained on. And that's not always, you know, um, not always the best uh, course of action when different weapons like different kinds of lubricant is that lubricant available in country we don't know um in most cases it wasn't at the time so troops begin to have issues with the rifle because of a number of factors um the design isn't fully uh matured in the it no it doesn't actually have a chrome lined um bore or barrel which is something that the m14 benefited from so a chrome-lined bore and barrel, what, what that basically means is that the, the the inside of the barrel won't rust if it's exposed to water. Okay. So stainless steel will, basically. And that's what happened. That's one of the major issues that, that was discovered during um, the 1967 uh, Ishod, Ishod report, um, which was a congressional hearing in 1967, which investigated some of the issues with the M16. And while the main issue that was identified by that report was uh, the change the army made to the propellant, which projected the bullet from the cartridge. So to explain that a little bit, initially a, uh, a propellant powder was, was uh, developed by DuPont. And this differed in burn rate and uh, the velocity it created um, from the round that was finally used. So the M193 round that was issued with the M16 
I don't know. Maybe I'm going into a little bit too much niche detail here. No, but, no, this is all great stuff. Very interesting. <laughs> but um, the the M193 round um, had a uh, pretty much um, higher burn rate, faster burn rate, which caused um, higher cyclic rate to the rifle, so the, the rifle fired faster, so it got hotter faster, so it fouled faster. So the report basically identified that as an issue. And that's the issue that everyone um, that's interested in the M16 and looks into its history is basically, you know, they, that's the, the, the key issue with the M16 in Vietnam, the ammunition. The design was fine. It was the ammunition's fault, mm-hmm. which true to an extent, but there's also other factors as well. As I mentioned, troops aren't cleaning the weapons properly in some cases. They aren't being trained to care for the weapons properly. And um, there's the issue of corrosion in the bore. So the the chrome the lack of chrome lining means that when a, a round is fired in the chamber, that round is mechanically purchasing into the chamber in these small bits of rusted out uh, metal. So add on to that issues with getting sand or dirt into the rifle, which wasn't a, a major issue, but occurred. And sand and, and dirt can act as sort of like um, a locking point. So tiny granules of dirt and sand can can bind up a, um, the tolerances of, of a cartridge in the chamber. Add on to that the corrosion issues. And um, some of the ammunition that was produced, the cases, the brass case, which holds the powder and the bullet together, they weren't hardened enough. And what that means is the metal was weak. So when the round was fired, if the round, if the sorry, if the case is sort of bound into the chamber by the dirt or corrosion, it'll stick. And when the bolt moves to the rear, what it does is the worst possible thing: it rips the base of the cartridge off. So instead of extracting the case as a whole and ejecting it out of the rifle, the walls of the case, sort of like the longer portion, not the base, remain in the chamber. And the rear portion gets ripped off mechanically, physically ripped off. So if if I can, in my pea brain layman's term, that's like putting, um, like a, a a smaller tube inside another tube, and then exactly. it gives you nothing to like grab on to pull it out. Yes, exactly. That was the major issue, especially so, if you're getting shot at by you know twenty guys at the same time. Oh God, yeah, it's 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 an absolute nightmare. It's the worst. Seems like an issue. Failure. So a failure to eject, that's fine. You can you can basically use your forward assist. You can get the the bolt to repurchase onto the cartridge, pull the bolt up, pull the bolt back. That'll extract the round. Um, other failures, there you know you can change. You can normally fix with immediate action drills, which is like remove the magazine, run the bolt, the action, um, reinsert the magazine, load a new round. That's fine. But when you have a piece of brass case which is stuck into the bore that means you can't chamber another round so the the rifle basically becomes a big plastic and metal club at that point because you you can't you can't get that case out without running a clearing rod down the barrel and basically poking the remnants yeah. of the case back out of the action so you see in photographs 66 67 65 sometimes of guys with clearing rods from um 
M14s basically taped to the sides of their rifles because they aren't taking any chances. So yeah, that's one of the, 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 the key issues. So you have this sort of perfect storm of problems, which leads to the issues of um, reliability in Vietnam. And obviously yeah, it's very emotionally charged because you have reports of men dying by their rifles, you know, with them broken open, trying to clean them, trying to, trying to pull cases out. And there's truth to that. It's certainly true. Um, and there, there are accounts of, of that happening in the field, men being killed because of the, the, the failure. But the reasons behind that are, aren't simple. So there's, there's a whole plethora of reasons that, you know, we've gone over some of them there. We've, um, you have ammunition propellant issues, case issues aren't hardened enough. Um, the rifles designed the bore and barrel aren't chrome lined and the weapons aren't being cleaned properly in some cases, not all cases, but some. So those four major reasons sort of combined to, to create this issue of reliability, which was addressed through Colt then moving to a completely chrome lined barrel and bore. So that removed the corrosion issue and Another major um, initiative that was, was was done was to clean the weapons properly. So, you know, uh, the famous cartoon handbook for the M16 was was printed and, and given to troops and Marines. And, you know, that basically says it in, you know, almost humorous terms, like you've got to clean your rifle. Um, but once those changes were made, the rifle becomes, you know, much more reliable. And obviously, the the the, uh, the third thing that was done was that uh, the cases were were made to a specified um, uh, hardening uh, strength. So basically, the the cases were durable enough to you know not have these case failures where the the, the base of the cartridge case would shear off from the the body, and you'd end up with a useless rifle. And and. I think it's it, it probably goes without saying, but for listeners who who aren't familiar, don't know, no weapon system is ever a hundred percent. No, no, it isn't. I mean, you had spears and swords breaking. I mean, every period in history, weapons fail. Um, the stresses of combat are really beyond recreating. So even if you try and test them constantly, something can always happen. But it sounds like from what you're saying that the steps taken to address the failures of the M16 get it closer and closer to that, uh, you know, that almost, you know, almost perfect or 100 percent of the time as close to that as you can get. Is that is that something that we see on the other side? Do the do the uh, North Vietnamese or the communist um, do they address issues with the potential problems that they have with their weapons or is it more something where they just do they even have a board that would go and and take a look at the issues or do they just say deal with it yeah well i mean obviously on the north vietnamese side things are much more uh interesting because they have a number of organizations you have uh, the Viet Cong, which are an, are an organized but much more loosely so sort of um organization and then we have the north vietnamese army which is a professional uh conscript force i believe it was conscript but um yeah so obviously the mva had um 
an ordnance board per se. Basically, uh, they they uh, they definitely had an organization which organized the logistics and um, fielding of weapons. You know, making sure the troops had the right ammunition for the right weapons, making sure that the weapons actually worked, um, making sure that spares were in the field for repairing things. So they were fairly organized. Um, it's easy to think of, you know, like the lone uh, Viet Cong, you know, with his rusty wasn't again or SKS, you know, with no logistical supply chain behind it. But that was very different um, with the MVA, as you as you know and probably mentioned um, when looking at Idrang, they were a, a very well trained professional force at that point. You know, they for for all their you know shortcomings, the fact that they were regular troops engaging regular troops for you know the first major time that's a, a, a big deal but obviously um the weapons that they the north vietnamese were, were, were armed with are you know pretty different from from those of the us so we have the sks which is a basically a um self-loading rifle which is you know fires semi-automatic only one round per trigger pull um and the ak-47 or the AKM which is the uh, the uh, Soviet equivalent of um, the M16. Obviously, it pre predates the M16 by a number of years, um, and it fires a slightly different sort of round. So both the M16 and the AK-47 are um, what are known as intermediate caliber weapons. So they aren't firing the same large caliber rounds that infantry rifles in World War II were firing. They're halfway between those large rounds and the pistol rounds that pistols and submachine guns fired. So they have a little bit more controllability, a little bit lighter, uh, but they don't have the same range or stopping power as, say, the larger caliber rounds. So the development of this idea of an intermediate caliber um, is something that arose across all the combatants of um, the Second World War. So by the end of the war, um, Britain, the US, uh, the Soviet Union, were all looking at developing a round that was smaller, um, that would allow rifles to be lighter and more controllable in automatic fire because it was found um, through uh, investigations and, and reports and, and, um, and studies both during the war and after, that the average combat range of an engagement was under 200, 200 yards, 200 meters. Um, so at that point, the power and range of those larger rifles becomes relatively unnecessary. In fact, it becomes a detriment to engaging at those close quarters. So that's why you see the rise of, of um, submachine guns as being so popular, especially um, in, within the Red Army. Um, the PPSH, uh, PPS, they become massively popular. They, they arm entire battalions with solely submachine guns because they're shock troops. They're fighting at close range, hosing down the enemy. Uh -huh. So that's a factor that comes to play with the development of the M16 and the AK-47. They want, they want to sort of have that ideal weapon where they have the range of the larger caliber rifles, but also the firepower of the submachine gun so you can you can pin people down but you can also reach out from a long distance and, and hit targets so 
the Soviets does develop um, the 7.62 by 39 millimeter round, which is slightly larger caliber than the 5.56 by 45 that was developed by uh, the US. And the doctrinal use is pretty much the same. They basically, um, the weapons are used much the same on both sides. So they select fire weapons, the AK and the M16. So you can pin troops down, you can fire while moving, you can uh, suppress large areas with relatively few men. And one of the AK's key tenants is its reliability. So the key advantage that the AK has over the M16 in Vietnam is that the AK is a weapon that had been in service for much longer. So it had been tested more, it had been developed more. It had its own initial issues. Um, they'd initially designed it to be what's known as a stamped weapon. So the parts would have been stamped in, in, in manufacturing rather than milled on milling machines. Hmm. But they found that this was causing reliability issues and uh, they couldn't produce them quick enough. So for a period, they moved away back to milling. So the, the weapons receivers and, and, and parts were, were made on milling machines rather than on stamping dies, etc. So the AK-47 wasn't without its own initial sort of like um, problems and issues. But by the time it reaches Vietnam, it's moved beyond them. So it's, it's more reliable. And obviously the AK has, in theory, a greater tolerance to uh, the ingress of debt and, and, and the weather. Um, but it's it's kind of a fallacy to, to think of the AK as being pre, you know the preeminent reliable rifle when the M6, M16 is basically what's known as an enclosed system. So there isn't a lot of ways that dirt can get into the rifle. Basically, it's only through the ejection port and the muzzle that dirt can get into the rifle system. And the M16 runs what's known as a, a direct impingement system. So it doesn't have the working parts of an AK either. And what direct impingement is, gas from the barrel is tapped off and it directly impinges or pushes back on the bolt, which is what cycles the weapon. So with an AK, it's a piston-driven system, so the AK is heavier because it has the mass of this large piston. And while some, some argue that piston-driven guns are more reliable, the M16 being an enclosed system means that if you fall into a you know a rice paddy and you get your rifle covered in mud, as long as you have your dust cover closed and you know you keep the mud out of, out of the, the muzzle of your rifle, then no mud will get into that weapon because there are no openings for the mud to get into. Um, and while the AK has space for mud to go into inside the weapon, which means it'll function for longer if it's dirty. Um, it's a more open action. So the, it has a dust cover, which is also sort of uh, the safety selector, which is, you know, the, the, the weapons um, basically control for either semi or full automatic or safe. And what that does is if it's unsafe, it, it closes up the action. But if you're walking around with the weapon off safe, ready for action, and mud gets in, then a lot more mud will get into an AK than it would an M16. 
So I wonder if the reason we, or the reason that the myth of the AK being more um, reliable, I wonder if that stems from just, we are overexposed to it in the sense that any civil war, terrorist group, any conflict over the last 40 years, we've seen, um, you know, the AK-47 pop up all over the world in every hemisphere, any kind of terrain everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's ubiquity is definitely one of the key things about the AK that, you know, the Soviet Union produced so many of them and sort of issued them out to any uh, any friendly party, let's say. So obviously the entire communist bloc, but then also um, sort of uh, insurgent movements within Africa, yeah. uh, Asia, South America. They all, they all, you know, they all somehow came about, you know, uh, getting hold of AKs. <laughs> and you know, we obviously see the, see the AK on the news um, in movies because it's that iconic weapon of you know the insurgent, the terrorist. Mm-hmm. And you know, you could you could talk about the AK. Um, all day purely on on its um popular popular culture sort of image and you know the way it's become iconic of the cold war but i think one of the interesting things about the ak is that like the m16 it remains a relevant weapon it remains um the chosen weapon of dozens and dozens and dozens of countries around the world. So you still have that interesting dichotomy of the West with the M16 and 5.56 rifles and, you know, the former communist bloc, Russia, uh, China, North Korea, etc., still armed with AK pattern rifles. So they've moved on just like the, the M16 has. So the, uh, the, 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 the brand new uh, Russian army rifle is uh an ak but it is a much more modular improved version of the ak much like the m4a1 carbine is a much more modular improved version of the m16 Hmm. well here's the thing i could um i could listen to you go on about this stuff for 10 hours straight um i really really uh, i'm blown away you're just your grasp of all this stuff is phenomenal but i don't want to take up your whole day so i would love it if you uh just gave us a rundown one more time on where we can find your work where we can find the armor's bench and also what do you have going on is there anything um any particular videos coming up anything that we can uh any books that we can order anything we can find um on the internet and go to and support or follow you um, because this is not going to be our last conversation if it's all right with you at some point, oh, no, I'd love, love to have you back on, um, and ha- devote an entire conversation just to the AK and just to the, uh, you know, various different weapons, because there's quite a few more battles in Vietnam to come. Um, but so yeah, give us the lowdown on what, uh, what we can, f- or where we can find you and what you have coming up. Sure. Well, um, firstly, Thank you for inviting me on. I mean, it's an absolute pleasure to, to come and discuss something so interesting as the M16. And I probably could ramble on all day about, you know, the interesting <laughs> ins and outs of the M16. 
we've basically covered in, in in this conversation we've covered the first maybe 10 years <laughs> of it of its lifespan and um, you know it goes on to be continually used and only just looking at possible systems that might replace it right now um but yeah um uh, as i mentioned before i'm busy with the armorer's bench which is a multimedia look at various firearms um and i've recently just finished and published a book on the projector infantry anti-tank which was britain's um infantry anti-tank weapon during world war ii um which is about as far removed from the m16 as you can possibly imagine um but it's a really fascinating sort of weapon that has a lot of misconceptions around it you know there's a lot of um people think of it as sort of this spring-powered bazooka where it's really it couldn't be further from the truth it's uh, kind of iconic in its own right though yeah yeah it's one of those one of those quirky English British weapons that <laughs> sort of like you know were, were pulled out of out of the hat in a in a crunch, and we sort of in that classic trope of British engineering, we addressed the problem of taking out panzers with an unusual sort of quirky system of using a a weapon that has a giant spring and a and a spigot, which is like a, a rod which fires a um a sizable bomb um it was was pretty effective you know it 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 worked um so yeah i've just i've basically just come off uh, the the massive research project of of getting that all together and digging into the intricacies and finding out whether the misconceptions around the pier are actually true or not and most of them aren't which i was quite surprised by you know i went into that project thinking the pier's just this weird spring-loaded thing that fired mortar bombs you know i went into the project with probably as many misconceptions as most people have about you know what what the weapon could actually do so it's one of those rewarding projects where you you dig into it and you find out oh so that you know this is this is widely held as being not that useful where in fact it was you know it was a pretty decent weapon so yeah, I've just I've just finished up writing writing a book about the PR that's out now. You can if you're interested in obscure British anti-tank weapons, you can find out about that through um my website, historicalfirearms.info. Is there a you place where we can order the book? Yeah, you can order it direct from me through historical firearms. Okay, cool. Uh, I can certainly get those out to anyone that would like a copy. Um and other than that, I'm basically hard at work on making a series of videos about the piat and um some of the weapons that were developed before it and then from it afterwards so there's lots of weird and other interesting things like the blacker bombard which was a a giant spigot mortar that was developed before the piat um and then there's the hedgehog anti-submarine weapon which uses the same spigot mortar principle where they they've basically fired off a, a load of um depth charge bombs from a from what looked like a hedgehog because just spikes of these spigots um so yeah basically i, I, I last 18 months has been heavily spigot mortar involved <laughs> so you're you're probably the world's foremost piot man at this point yeah there's a there's a couple of people that have, have dug deep into it but i think I've, i'm the first person to publish a book on it that's for sure yeah <laughs> 
Well, that's very cool. Um, again, I really, really appreciate you coming on and giving me, I told you, I think I said 20 or 30 minutes and now we're approaching an hour and I honestly lost track. You have to cook some of me rambling, I think. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, not at all. Um, all right, Matt, thank you again. This is Matt from the Armors Bench. I'm your host, Cullen, and uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, like I said, we're definitely going to have to have you back on at some point. Definitely. Um, Love to come back on and talk about other topics. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on.